Welcome back, everyone, to North of Shy, the Baird & Warner North Shore podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Eric Schwinger. I'm the designated managing broker of Baird & Warner's Winnetka office. I'm sitting here with all three of my co-hosts this morning. We've got Ian Robinson, designated managing broker of the Glenbrook office. Hello, everyone. We've got Dina Listener here, the designated managing broker of our Highland Park office. Hi, everybody. And we have Catherine Leonard here, the designated managing broker of our Evanston office. Hello there. So we've got the full all-star crew here, a lot of brain power in the room. And today we wanted to talk a little bit about uh, some of the common issues that we're seeing in this market right now with our agents. Um, as many of you listening probably know, we're in a unique situation in the market right now where we've got a whole lot of buyer demand and not a whole lot of houses to sell. So the result of that dynamic is that we are experiencing a lot of uh, multiple offer situations and multiple offer situations can be tricky, right guys? Absolutely. Sure thing. So how do we as managing brokers coach our agents through these tricky situations? Well, uh, as everyone knows, we've got two sides to every transaction, right? You've got a buyer side and a seller side. So let's start with the seller side. Uh, Ian, tell us a little bit about how you help your agents through tricky multiple offer situations when they're working with home sellers. Well, the, the absolute first thing is that an agent needs to be very aware of what is allowed and what's not allowed to protect both your seller and yourself and uh, your buyer if you're working with a buyer and understand what, what uh, agents can and can't do. So the first thing I always coach them on is you need to inform the seller of their options. And the, the seller essentially has two options. They have multiple offers. They can either pick one offer to negotiate with and set the other ones aside, or they can call for highest and best. If they call for highest and best, that doesn't mean they can't negotiate in the future, but they can't negotiate with one person while telling the rest of them highest and best. They would need to wait till they get the highest and best offers in, and then they could pick the one that the seller wants to negotiate at that time and set the other ones off to the side. Um, there's a lot of confusion in, in, in this regard. A lot of agents think that it's their job to always call for highest and best, and that's just what they're supposed to do. That's not always the right thing. Sometimes one of these offers may be a cash offer that's a very strong offer with the perfect close date. Maybe it's as is condition, and it's just a great offer. And that seller is, hey, I want to take it as is, or I just want to negotiate with that one person. That may be the best thing for them to do. Sometimes trying to get them the highest price is not necessarily the best thing for the seller and what's in their best interest. So we need to make sure we don't make decisions and encourage them to do things based on what we think our job is. We should do it based on what their needs are. So essentially, if you don't call for highest and best, you have to pick one offer and negotiate with that. When you're negotiating with that one offer, if it reaches an impasse, well, the ball is in the seller's court, then that seller can switch to a different offer and start negotiating with them. But the seller can never have two counters. They can't say, you know, agent A, if your client comes up to 500,000, they can have it. And agent B, if your client comes up to 500,000 and changes the closing date, you can have it because they could have two buyers that think they have a verbal agreement and that is an ethics, an ethics nightmare, basically. So it's really important to keep in mind you have those two options. Negotiate with one. When it, the ball's in the seller's court, they can switch to a different one or call for highest and best. Once the highest and best is received, 
the seller could potentially call for another highest and best, or they could pick one and negotiate further with it, or they could just accept one. Um, so it's really important to know that. Now on the buyer side, the buyer's agents can't always count on the listing agents understanding what they're allowed to do. And sometimes these listing agents, you know, do kind of crazy things. Um, and Dina, why don't you give us your thoughts on that? Well, I find that being on the buyer side of a uh, multiple offer situation can be tricky. This is the number one uh, piece of advice that I always have for agents is make sure, number one, if your clients are getting a loan, that they are pre-qualified and they have all of their paperwork in order so they're ready to uh, go forward with an offer. My other piece of advice is uh, to make sure that find out from the seller's agent what would what is most important to the seller what would make your offer stick out amongst the other offers that are on the table the one thing that i want that i suggest too that you keep in mind as an agent is that buyers can be scared off by a multiple offer situation so it's important that the that you that you as an agent explain to your client exactly what it means to be in a multiple offer situation I'd like to add, this is Catherine, everybody. I'd like to add that at Baird and Warner this year, particularly, we've had a wonderful large group of new to the business agents join us. And our trainings, I think, in all of our North Shore offices include, you know, talking about all the tools that a new agent might not be familiar with um, and kind of going through each of those, as Dina said, whether it's timing, earnest money, the as is clause and explaining what that is. And so rest assured, if you're new to the business, um, we're ready to arm you with all of that information. Yeah, excellent. So it sounds like uh, one of the main things to keep in mind when dealing with multiple offer situations as an agent, whether you're on the buy side or the sell side is communication with your client. Uh, Remember who you work for, right? You work for your client. You don't work for the buyer or the buyer's client if you're working with a seller. Uh, And if you are working with a buyer, you work for your client, you don't work for the listing agent. Uh, So keep in mind that communication is key with your clients and also with the other agent on the other side of the multiple offer situation, right? Uh, If you can build some rapport with that agent, if they can gain a little bit of trust in you and knowing that you're always doing things right, that can only help your client's cause when it comes to uh, which offer that the seller is going to choose if the seller is asking their agent for some advice on, uh, you know, which offer they think they should go with. And I, I think it's also worth mentioning that multiple offers aren't for everyone. Um, some people don't have the stomach for it and some people um, don't want to feel like they are negotiating against themselves, which can happen if you're not careful in a multiple offer situation. So you, as as was said earlier by Eric, you do have to make sure that you have a strong line of communication with the seller's agent so you know where they're coming from and things feel comfortable for your client who will be writing an offer in a multiple offer situation. You may hear a lot about escalation clauses, which um, live in the multiple offer world. And as Dina said, I've encountered sellers that say, I don't want to deal with an escalation clause. And the um, agents whose client has written an escalation clause can't believe it. 
but theirs didn't win. And sometimes sellers just, as you said, don't have the stomach for it. So there are so many variables and iterations that come into play and uh, we're here to support one another. Yeah, I agree with that on the escalation clauses, you know, and not only do some sellers not like it, some sellers will look at those and go, I just, I, I just want to know what you're willing to pay for my house. <laughs> and it kind of gives the sellers the impression of, well, I'll pay this if I have to, but I don't really want to. So I'm going to give you a lower offer that that's basically the message it gets. And when it comes down to a really hot market, like we've been in, there's been many times where someone who just made a good high offer that was actually less than an escalation clause is the one that got it because the sellers just think that that's a better message. They feel better about that offer. It, it shows the seller that your client, the buyer, is willing to put everything out there and make a higher offer from the get-go rather than, like Ian said, messing around with the price uh, with an escalation clause. Right. Absolutely. So besides price, what are some of the other things that we encourage our agents to think about when, let's say, you're working with a buyer and you're submitting an offer uh, in a multiple offer situation? Uh, what are some of the other levers you can pull in a in the 7.0 contract that will allow your offer to stand out amongst the others? Just, just about anything. I mean, the, you know, certainly more earnest money is helpful doing a closing date that is, you know, at the seller's, you know, choice of a closing date, uh, doing uh, things like reducing the attorney and review and inspection review period so that, you know, they know, hey, it's going to be three days instead of five days. Sometimes in really hot markets, they might even eliminate those things. I don't personally recommend that. I think that's a mistake. Um, you know, all of those things. And even we've even seen people start paying for the buyer paying for their own home warranty and adding the coverage for the seller during the rest of the time before the closing. So the seller is covered if anything goes wrong before closing. We've even seen some of that stuff. So anything and everything. Um, one thing that's really critical agents remember, we are not allowed to draft riders. We can't do it. The buyer can draft a rider that they want to add to the contract or the buyer's attorney can, but we cannot draft language at all. One other thing that I have seen a lot of lately is the home sale contingency. And that is a big hang up for a seller if a buyer has a home to sell first. Well, understandably, this is a gamble essentially that you're asking the seller to take that you can sell that your that your buyer's house will be sold in a relatively quickly manner, a relatively quick manner. So when you have this clause in there, a seller is more likely to turn that offer down, asking you instead to gamble on your on you selling your own house, remove that clause, take your mortgage without the clause and work on selling your house, uh, regardless of whether you're buying this house or not, or whether you get this house or not, or wherever you're at, they don't want to necessarily take the gamble. So you have to keep that in mind when you're talking to clients. Unfortunately, not all buyers can afford to remove their home sale contingency, but it is important to have the language to explain that you are asking the seller to gamble on your house selling. I don't think that a lot of buyers realize that that's what they're asking. And speaking of home sale contingencies, there's a reverse contingency whereby when there's low inventory, the seller may say, I'll take your offer contingent on my finding a home. And we're seeing a little bit of that, mm -hmm. which is uh, a, a kind of heretofore not not seen very often. 
When it comes to the as is clause, um, I have made good use of having clients sometimes have an attorney explain it to them so that they feel comfortable about what the as is clause actually is. It doesn't mean you're blindly buying a home. They absolutely inspect it, but it's a promise that you won't renegotiate the price after the inspection. And, you know, whenever you introduce one of these tools, sometimes it's helpful to clients to hear it from their attorney. And we found that to be a good tool. Yeah, great point. Uh, speaking of attorneys, uh, something that they typically will get involved in are leasebacks. How do we all feel about leasebacks? I mean, we hear a lot about this and a leaseback is a situation where um, the buyer offers to close on the home, but let the seller stay in the home for a period of time and lease it back from them. And that can be a really appealing thing to a seller. So if a seller doesn't necessarily have their next place lined up or it's going to take a little bit of time for them to move into the new place, uh, the advantage to the seller to doing a leaseback is they get their money because the property has closed uh, and then they have a period of time to still stay in the home. Um, so how do we feel about that? I have a very strong opinion <laughs> about that. Good, tell us. My, I, I strongly, strongly discourage any sort of a um, post-closed possession. I have, when I was selling myself, I had some clients that were burned, unfortunately, because as a seller, yes, it makes you more comfortable feeling like you can stay in the house, but you, you usually are putting money in escrow to ensure that there's no damage to the property once you've moved out. Unfortunately, if a, if a buyer comes in and they say, for instance, the floor is scratched and it wasn't scratched before, before or there is some damage to the paint, you don't have a strong case to get your money back. It's and, and I'm not saying that a seller can't get their money back, but the buyer really has nothing to lose by keeping your money in escrow where you as the seller have everything to lose. Your money could sit there for 15 years. Yeah, and, and the same holds true for the, the buyers is the, the buyers think, oh, you know, the sellers are going to be moving out on this date and I'm going to be able to move into the house. If the sellers don't move out, they're tenants now. You have to go through an eviction process with, with an attorney and take probably months to get through that eviction process. And that can completely derail the buyer's plans too. It's really not a great thing for anybody. Um, but at, you know, right now, at the way the market is, we're seeing that creep up a little bit because buyers are so desperate, they're willing to take that risk. But there is risk, like Dina said, for the sellers as well. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the willingness to take risk, risk or assume risk is a, a big conversation to have and a big consideration when you're thinking about doing a lease back. Absolutely. Uh, any other things that you guys can think of that might help a buyer's offer stand out in a market like this? Well, I'm sure we have a million more ideas, but I, I think we could probably do another couple episodes on, on uh, topics like this. Yeah, absolutely. Agreed. All right. Well, uh, I guess we'll wrap it up here for today. Uh, thank you all for listening, and uh, we'll see you on the next episode of North of Shy.